0: Welcome to another episode of Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yi,
1: And I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Professor Yuri Bujaki, the Biggs Professor of Neuroscience in the Department of Neuroscience and Physiology at NYU. In this episode, we will talk about the importance of brain rhythms, the hippocampus and how memories are stored, and Professor Bujaki's favorite philosopher. All this and more, coming up. We're here with Dr. Yuri Bujaki, Professor of Neuroscience in the Department of Neuroscience and Physiology at NYU. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Bujaki. Most welcome. So first we'd just like to know a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you get your start in science and, and how did you know that you wanted to become a scientist?
2: I attended a special math physics class in in high school. I was a radio I am radio and became very interested in radio communication. Uh-huh. And uh, as a naive teenager, I had uh, great ideas and uh, I wanted to become an electrical engineer. And especially I wanted to design a system to shoot a signal to the moon and detect the return signal. And that was a very clear agenda in my mind. But then uh, my uh, parents told me that uh, I have to choose between law school or medical school because these were the two universities in my town, whereas engineering school was in, in Budapest. So I had to choose between the two opportunities, so I went to medical school. And uh, it was pretty boring, but uh, in the second year, when I started to study physiology, and it became to the newer part of physiology, and my future mentor gave a couple of interesting talks about neuroscience, and uh, that was it. I, I got hooked to neuroscience right away. What
1: about the lectures? Was there something in the neuroscience? He oh, was, was
2: a very charismatic speaker. Whenever he talked to the medical students, then even the law students came over because he was mesmerizing. And he made every lecture so interesting that uh, we thought that whatever he was talking about was the most important question in the universe. One of the first lectures I remember was about control theory, but uh, applied to the brain. And that somehow fit my interest in engineering, and I thought, this is it. The medical profession could be interesting.
1: Now, just getting into uh, what you um, study now, you are, you're well known in many fields in neuroscience for your work on understanding brain rhythms and how these rhythms contribute to the function of neural microcircuits. You've done much work in the hippocampus showing that these rhythms have consequences for the animal's behavior. Can you explain to us what brain rhythms are and why they're important?
2: In in any system you study, especially if it's a complicated system, information should be coded and packaged one way or another. If it's only one stream of information and there is no beginning, no end, it doesn't make sense. Morse code is a good example. Without a great silence uh, between the receiver and the, the sender, there would be no easy way to recover the information. Similarly, when you are talking to me, the way we communicate is that we use silences, punctuation marks, uh, commas, and so on, written and spoken language. So we segment the information because this is the only way how we are able to comprehend messages. And the brain probably should have the same issues and problems to solve. And it seems that it solved the problem of segmentation by generating multiple rhythms. Every neural oscillator that we know of is inhibition-based, so it's a natural way of uh, making short and and longer packages. You know, there are about ten identified classes of oscillations in the brains, which span several orders of magnitude. So there are faster ones, longer ones. So we can sense short packages and longer packages. So to speak, we can talk about neural letters, neural words, or sentences, and. the attractive part for me this is of course you know this is this is not how I studied. Uh, this is what I think today but what was so exciting to me about initially when I observed hippocampal theta oscillations uh, that these are when when I looked at another one and another one and another one eventually it turned out that this is a system with a mathematically definable relationship to each other so in such a way that the mean frequencies of the known oscillations Coincides with the integers of a natural logarithm scale. Moreover, they interact with each other, and uh, because because on a natural scale the the relationships are are irrational, Uh the oscillations can never entrain each other perfectly. And this is one of the explanation why the electrical landscape of the of of the brain can never settle because of this interesting Uh interference pattern. Uh But there is also another tie, which is fascinating even if they are not doing anything, as some of the critics might say, is that they form a very interesting hierarchical relationship. And this hierarchy can be translated or explained pretty easily, namely that the phase of the slow oscillation always modulates the amplitude of the faster one, and the phase of the faster one modulates the amplitude of even faster one. So there is a Uh, that these are not independent but they are together and so this is one very important way of of, uh, looking at uh, the mesoscopic organization of the brain and then you can ask the question how do you coordinate activity of neurons or how do you coordinate activity across different regions and uh, probably one of the best or cheapest ways is coordinating through inhibition and the uh, inhibition is very strongly evolved most of the time in oscillations. So oscillations is a, is a good mesoscopic pattern to look at how information is segmented and how it's coordinated across brain regions.
1: And when were theater uh, rhythms first noticed? And, you know, what, what was the thought back when, when they uh, first came to... Well, there,
2: the, is, there is, as you know, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything has a long history. Right. Uh, uh, typically, it is, uh, is, uh, the history brings it back to 1954 to two guys, uh, Green and Arduino working at UCLA but in fact in 1938 it has been already described by two Germans and so depending on what preparation you look at the, the Germans were not necessarily recording from hippocampus but they, it's very likely that they were recording from hippocampal they were recording from hippocampal theta oscillations but these were uh, all done under anesthesia, and the reason why it's called theta is, in fact, because under anesthesia, the frequency range corresponds to this uh, 47 hertz. But in the waking animal, in fact, it's not theta. It should be called alpha, but historical for historical reasons, we keep referring it to hippocampal theta. Yeah. First uh, recordings uh, in uh, behaving cat was performed by my mentor, and Grascian, in 1959, and so I inherited the, the theta from him. And uh, okay. with all the problems uh, that are associated with Theta.
1: And what were initial theories about its function? Uh, well, that's a very right. fascinating
2: story because it was uh, you know, just like the alpha rhythm. But the alpha rhythm is pretty simple because uh, it has a very clear behavioral correlates, whereas Theta was not. So depending on uh, who and uh, what, with what background expectation people were looking at, Uh, the Theta Oscillation, they have associated with a variety of different things. I have written about the history of Theta in a couple of places, and I have a nice figure showing how the theories increase over time and then uh, they sort of disappear, because uh, by the late 90s, there was not a single word in the psychological vocabulary that has not been associated with the Hippocampal Theta. Uh, Spanning from uh, voluntary movement to attention, focal attention, uh, copulation, uh, heart rhythms, anything you name. And the reason for that, of course, is that this pattern manifests itself in various ways. And in in general, you can say when the brain is in exploratory behavior or using the older terminology in preparatory behavior, there is always data. And they, whenever the brain is in the consummatory state, then theta disappears. This dichotomy of brain states, of course, applies to many, many things that you do in the laboratory. That's why there were so many theories. When gamma oscillation was, uh, became, has became popular, then initially uh, there were only two or three candidates, and now we have got tons and tons and tons. And it started with attention, binding, and then consciousness, and then uh, sp- uh, lots of specificity. These are patterns in the brain that involves very strongly how neurons behave and not necessarily how the behavior is or or how our interpretations uh, will correspond to the particular pattern. There are very few rhythms and there are many, many words in the American Psychological Dictionary that can be associated. So it's very dangerous to say, you know, theta is about memory, gamma is about attention, sharp waves is about recall, beta is about movement, and so on and so on. So just leave them the way they are, which is a manifestation of physiological activity, and then it's a larger question how the expression of a particular written or particular mesoscopic pattern in a, in a given brain region, in a given context corresponds to some explicit behavior. So.
1: These uh, phenomenon are sort of widely distributed throughout the brain. It must be very tough to associate them with a function, even in a particular brain region, but you know, as we'll talk about your lab has really made a lot of um, strides toward doing that, uh, particularly in the hippocampus. Before we go on and get into some of that work, uh, can you just describe the anatomy of some of the um, largest sources of these oscillations and also at a, a cellular level how uh, these uh, oscillations, Become manifest
2: oscillations as well as uh, well regular, regularly regular patterns that manifest at the excess, in the extracellular space are very useful for the experimenter. So the local field potentials are not used by the brain, but it's a, it's a it's a useful diagnostic tool. It's it's a little bit like the 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 murmur of the heart that is very good for a for a physician to diagnose something about the condition of the heart, but that information is never used by the heart so the same applies to the local field potentials and the bold signal and there are many many patterns that we just use for us so that's why it is so critical to know what it is exactly about and the reason why written research became acceptable or I would say even popular today is because many of the pattern, the, the, content, the spiking content of these patterns uh, are better understood. Hippocampal theta is especially good because you know the timing of the action potentials within the, the hippocampal theta cycle is very important. We also know that there are s- certain yeah. uh, uh, mechanism or certain uh, 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 ways how the entire phase space of data is, is utilized under normal circumstances. And we know from experiments, if we synchronize the neural firing very strongly, that there is very strong and detectable behavioral consequence. So Uh to make the long story short, everything that you see in the extracellular space is due to a membrane potential fluctuation of uh, Uh synchronized or cooperative group of neurons, typically pyramidal cells. So it's a a nice uh, group readout what neurons do together. So it is a good thing because now you can zoom in and uh, look at single neurons and relate the single neuron spiking activity to their mesoscopic or collective behavior. Yeah. And this is something that you don't see typically with uh, with calcium signal for example, because you are looking at one neuron or many many neurons, but you don't look uh, you' are not looking at the same time what is their their collective behavior so th- this is this is about extracellular sp- uh, potential that you can measure now when it comes to specific mechanisms, yeah. things are getting a little bit more complicated yeah. if you look at the origin of gamma oscillations, which is a famous one, uh-huh. that's a sort of a simple, perhaps the simplest one in, 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 the, in the initial approach, because it's nothing else but a tug-of-war between excitation and inhibition. Uh-huh. Whenever, under any condition, when AMPA receptors and GABA-A receptors are activated together, yeah. then... Uh, the result of which is a a competition and the competition typically in any physical world is, is sold or, 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 or balanced yeah. by oscillation. So the oscillation is a way of the, the brain is, is trying to make a compensatory action. The good thing about it is that within that oscillatory cycle of course there is inequality. So the transmission of the information can be still secured. Nevertheless after the transmission happened you can go back to the baseline. So when you go to theta oscillation yeah. in the hippocampus, it's actually quite remarkable because gamma typically is due to the uh, fast uh, uh, spiking activity of a uh, uh, parmoboving-containing parasomatic interneurons. Uh-huh. So when they fire at the, their favorite frequency, they just produce a series of IPSPs, and in the extracellular space, it's called gamma. You can bunch up this... Uh, spiking activity into groups of, uh, let's say, eight cycles per second. Yeah. So the same mechanism, the same garbage neurons, are now generating a, a a barrage of gammas, and this barrage of gamma is translated into a slow oscillation, which is the theta oscillation. Of course, there are many other components. There is excitatory components in, in theta and so on. But this is the, the the basic idea, and and all the other oscillations work similar way that. One way or another, EPSPs and IPSPs uh, or spike after potentials, AHPs, they are synchronized across a a large number of neurons, and that is uh, measurable in the extracellular space. And this is a very useful pattern, by the way. We just had a paper this year in Science where we showed that the spiking activity of many neurons can be conceived as a population vector. And this population vector is how different neurons fire in different time slots vary. And, and this spiking, this, the change of these spiking patterns or constellation of the spikes, of course, this is what we call uh-huh. the, the phase sequences or, or, or uh, cell assembly sequences. Yeah. Now, it is very difficult to measure from, uh, and, uh, and record from thousands and thousands of neurons. However, each neuron whenever it spikes, it bro- uh-huh. broadcasts its signal to many, many target neurons and produces EPSPs and IPSPs. Okay. Now these EPSPs are IPSPs are transparent, transparent brain potentials which are also available in the extracellular space. Okay. So if you have many, many sensors with high t- spatial resolution within the brain tissue, then you can have an indirect measure of the evolution of the cell assemblies.
1: So you're able to see how the, this pop, micropopulation of cells uh, changes in their population activity over time and look at how each individual neuron that's a member of that population, its activity changes in response to that local environment.
2: Correct. So, for example, we showed that if you look at nothing else, just the amplitude and the phase distribution of the theta signal in neuronal space, we can very nicely predict the position of the animal if the recordings were made from the hippocampus Uh as we recorded from neurons. But we were not recording spikes at all, just the LFP, yet we got the same result. In
1: 1994, you published a paper uh, comparing the firing rate of these retrohippocampal neurons in cortex and seeing how that correlates with sharp wave ripples and with theta. And you found that deeper layer neurons seem to be more correlated with sharp waves, while upper layer neurons seem to track theta. Can you explain in more detail the circuitry of the hippocampus and how it connects to cortex, uh, what the difference between these sharp wave ripples and theta is, and, and what you found?
2: Well, actually, this story started in 1983. That was my dissertation. Let's just uh, start with the anatomy, because this is what you asked about. Yeah. So think about the hippocampus as a sausage and the neocortex as a, as a half ball. And then the hippocampus, yeah. by way of the entorhinal cortex, communicates with the entire neocortex. So it's an interesting organization because the inputs of this structure to the hippocampus are exactly the same as its outputs. So you may ask the engineering question is that what is, uh, the, what is the use of a structure whose inputs are the same as its inputs? Right. Uh, right. Whose outputs are the same as its inputs? And there is not much it can do except it can modify its inputs. Uh-huh. This uh-huh. is good news, of course, because this is what the hippocampus supposedly does it modifies the cortical patterns when it comes to memory formation uh-huh. <laughs> and when you zoom in and look at the the microscopic anatomical organization it just make perfect sense that the, there are different layers in the internal cortex the superficial layers will give rise to inputs and the outputs are, are from the hippocampus are, are addressing the deep layer internal neurons which in turn broadcast their signals all over the neocortex
1: there is some input output structure organized to it even though the specific brain region serves as both the input and
2: it's a it's a perfect input output organization but the key issue was back then and still today is that uh-huh this is doesn't happen in one cycle in fact yeah. the information comes in at one time And the information can sit there and delay is being delayed and it will be sent out at another time. So what are these times? The the idea that was uh, eventually expressed in uh, in multiple papers, but that's the one, the 1994 paper you also mentioned, started with the idea that what kind of patterns there are in the hippograms. And we already talked about data oscillations. Data oscillations happens in your brain right now when you are attending the environment and and absorbing information. Uh So this is the time when the hippocampus is listening and getting information from outsides, changing the synaptic weights in the CA3 region, but those changes are not very strong. And the information that you hear happens only once. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But
2: how is is it that we will some episodes we will remember for the rest of our lives? Mm
1: -hmm. Well,
2: the good thing is that after the... Explorative activity is over then the hippocampal program changes from the theta to what we call a sharp wave pattern And this is the pattern we discovered in 1983 Mm -hmm. And uh, just by looking at what it does, what what features it has already attracted me a lot And I spent half of my lifetime understanding uh, this hippocampal sharp phase So the attractive thing about it is that this is the most synchronous pattern in the entire brain in about 50 to 100 milliseconds, a lot of neurons in the red, this is in the 1994 paper with James Krobach, we calculated that anywhere between 50 to 100,000 neurons fire in a time slot of about 50 to 100 milliseconds, which is about 15% of the neuro- pyramidal cells that can fire together.
1: And these are in what subregion of the hippocampus?
2: Well, the, it's, it is initiated in CA3. Uh-huh travels to CA1, then it goes to the subiculum, layer 5 of the enteral cortex, but the impact can reach widespread areas. And the reason why the impact is large is because the neurons are firing synchronously. In fact, in your brain right now, the synchrony of the hippocampal neurons is less than 1%. But during a sharp wave, it's about 15%. So it's a 15-fold gain of excitation. So that's already attractive that the hippocampus can communicate with the neocortex, but at a time when you are not attending the environment. So, it, the, the idea that I formulated in '89 is called, a, they refer to it as a two-stage model of memory,
0: uh-huh.
2: that during learning, you shuffle the information to the hippocampus, it sits there for a while, it, it does something with the synaptic changes in CA3, and then when you no longer attend the environment because uh, you are involved in consumatory behaviors or you are in slow-wave sleep, then all of a sudden these sharp wave bursts occur mm-hmm. and uh, they do something useful. So they do two useful things for the brain.
1: Uh-huh.
2: One is that they have this very strongly powerful synchrony so they can indeed make their voice heard in the wide areas of the neocortex. Second, and uh, probably yeah. most exciting part of it is that the spiking content, the sequences of the neurons within the sharp wave bursts, are related to the previous experience. Yeah. So if the rat is running on a track and the, the sequence of the play cells is A, B, C, D, E, then these sequences can be replayed at a compressed version during sharp phase either forward or backward.
1: They keep a register of the location of the animal and uh, the the sequence is particularly played during these oscillations defined by the sharp wave ripple.
2: Exactly, or the conversation content that we have today has a sequential pattern because we go from one question to another question, yeah. and then the the replay during the sharp phase in a compressed better will reflect this spatial temporal patterning that you observe or experience during behavior. Yeah. Now, of course, the, 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 not all the work was done by, by us, there, been many, many laboratories that were engaged in this research. And uh, the, the first nice evidence uh, for the sequentiality, not necessarily the sequentially, but the spiking contact was provided by Wilson and McNaughton, But there are many, many experiments in many, many laboratories that support this general framework. Now, the key of the, the theory, of course, is that what happens if you get rid of them? And indeed, that's what, yeah. what happens that if you can selectively erase them while you are asleep. Then the memory consolidation process is impaired, and the uh-huh. consequence of, of erasing hundreds huh. to about a thousand of these phase a night is as bad as surgically removing the entire hippocampus. So what these sharp phase do for you is that they repeat. you don't have to when you are riding a bicycle or learning how to ride a bicycle, you have to, yeah. to train yourself many, many, many times. You need many, many trials. With hippocampal type of learning, you need one trial and the rest of the repetition is done for you by hippocampal sharp waves.
1: And so without these sharp waves, you don't get this sequential repeat. And so you, you kind of lose the whole system, is that correct?
2: That's the idea that those things that belong together, they are connected, they are strongly related in time and space in the waking state, but at the second time scale, they are, this relationship is kept during the sharp phase but uh-huh. it is accelerated in time in such a way that now the time constants of the neurons that exist in the brain can experience it. So the, 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 the sharper is about fifty milliseconds, a little bit longer, which corresponds to the time constant of an NMDA receptor, for example. Uh-huh. So, the, so you, this is a the, the the trick the brain has to do that when you experience something over time which huh. requires minutes and hours you have to compress this information otherwise there would be no neural mechanism to translate into permanent storage absolutely it has to be well there are many many ways not many but uh, there are probably multiple ways how how storage of information can be placed but synaptic uh, plasticity is probably one of the most important ones. So it's like
1: a zip file.
2: waves are the zip files of the brain.
1: Very cool analogy. Um, moving on, your lab uh, has not only been interested in um, these brain rhythms, uh, but also in the function of the hippocampus as a whole. Um, and in 2008, you published a paper in in Science showing that running on a stationary wheel activates sequential ensembles of pyramidal neurons. Previously, it was thought that the hippocampus marks the animal's physical location in the world, but since the animal is stationary in your paradigm, your results suggest something else. And this gets also to the uh, function of the brain rhythms in hippocampus, but uh, I wondered if you could speak about this difference in paradigm, looking at uh, this animal tracking its location in physical space versus time, and what it might say about what the hippocampus is, is just doing beyond just spatial navigation.
2: So if you ask anybody, you know, how do we recall or how we plan ahead or how do, how thoughts are generated in the brain, yeah. then you get the same answer as uh, has been probably formalized most eloquently by Konorsky and then later on Donald Hebb, that there are these cell assemblies that are generated in the brain. And th- the way I'm talking to you now is that there is a cell assembly somewhere in my brain that is activated and then its uh, information is given to another one, other cell assembly, and so on, and so on, and this goes on forever. Yeah. In other words, there are cell-generated patterns in the brain that are capable of bridging time, that are capable of combining information without any external cues in of the world.
1: Have people looked at the maximum number of sequences that can then be compressed into one uh, oscillation cycle of a sharp wave ripple? Yes,
2: yes, and the in, in various ways and the interesting answer is that it can be a short snip of the information just a short segment of the of the run in the in the track but then other laboratories or other people have seen it no no in fact you can have a lower sampling of the entire maze and then you can compress that but so that with the poorer resolution or in fact uh-huh. Uh, as Joseph Chichwari, my uh, my ex-student, showed that uh-huh, it's it's not only the 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 most recent information that is being replayed, but old information can be mixed with the with the mm-hmm. new. So the temporal span of a Sharp ray of lipo can be enormous. Uh-huh. Uh, and how you bias it at, and and uh, ex- exactly how it, what information protrudes is not very well understood. But it's well understood is that the most recent one is the most prominent. But it's mm-hmm. also a, a sort of a mixer of old and the new, endogenous source of uh, of creativity, if you wish, because yeah. uh, during sleep also some interesting s- things can happen to the brain that uh, otherwise we don't notice in the waking state. Mm-hmm. Back to the cell assembly sequences. Yeah. The cell assembly sequences are different from sharp waves because they happen at real time.
0: Mm-hmm. That
2: is, they evolve at the time of our thinking and our actions that is at the data pacing sequence. I was looking for this for this self-generated sequences throughout my life (laughs) because I knew that there must be there, everybody knew it must be there, but how do you find them? And the hippocampus seemed to be a good place because uh, the, the homework has been done already by outstanding people. Most, most particularly john O'Keefe yeah. Yeah. Uh, how we can track these neurons in a spatial environment but we also knew that this structure is also important for memory yeah. and yeah. memory has nothing to do with movement in the in at least in the in the in the immediate approach but we were thinking that aha uh-huh, you know the when you when you recall something or you plan ahead something that is not fundamentally different than moving in the environment, because in the environment you have to take shortcuts, you have to take uh, detours, and uh, it is uh, based on uh, previous experience also. Yeah. So, so there have been debates about the hippocampus as a structure for a spatial navigation only, or for it, it serves a general purpose such as memory and spatial navigation is part of it. Right. Well, right. for me it seems that that's not either or, but it's both. Because uh, mental travel is pretty much the same as uh, physical travel.
1: Yeah.
2: In a physical travel, in a a simplest situation, the external signals can make the information or the activity move forward because the environmental cues drive them. And in fact, O'Keefe's theory is all about how the external environment and the constellation of the cues in the external environment are Uh controlling... Neurons in the hippocampus, and for me it was a little bit like V1 uh, applied to the a deep structure in the brain, and it, and it doesn't explain how uh, we can think or we can uh, we can recall information from yeah. the past. Yeah. So this is how we designed with Eva the Eva an experiment that you referred to, and we showed that that in the absence of external information, uh-huh. the hippocampus and by generalization probably the entire brain, has no choice. It keeps generating sequences forever. So the fundamental anatomical and physiological organization of the hippocampus is generating sequences. And you ask, you know, how many patterns it can generate. The hippocampus can generate tons and tons and tons of patterns depending on how long time you allow to be as the framework of this sequence. So let me give you an example. How many keys can you strike with your ten fingers on the piano at the same time? The numbers are limited, but if you can play melodies, then how many melodies can you play on the piano? Yeah, infinite. Infinite. So the question is who can listen to this and who can understand it and who can make sense of those melodies.
0: Yeah.
2: So that's an interesting issue that the hippocampus in the rodent already can generate extraordinary number of patterns. But yeah. the meaning of the pattern is something that has to be acquired. So if the, if, the, if the brain would have no experience, it would still generate a lot of these patterns. But what happens is that with the result of experience, every one of them, or well, not every one of them, but some of the, the, the patterns acquire meaning. And the, the, right. the, the meaning is also meaning for the neocortex. So the, this large neocortex that in, is enlarged much more rapidly in uh, the mammalian evolution than the hippocampus is increasing the size. So the reader of yeah. this information is richer and richer.
0: Maybe yeah. this is kind of a weird analogy, but as a molecular biologist, I'm thinking about like B cell recombination or kind of immune responses, like all of these combinations are possible, but the exposure is what allows us when it's recalled to, to actually have a much bigger effect, I guess.
2: That's right. It, now everything what we call what, what, what can make sense in biology, it can make sense only from the point of view of a goal. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a catch-22, of course, because there are no, there is no goal in biology. But the same thing applies, that the patterns that are formed in the brain can be understood only if they are useful classifiers, they are useful interpreters. Without interpreting a pattern, it has no meaning. And this interpretation, what I call... Uh, Experience.
1: So it might be almost that uh, time is the prime, keeping sequences of time is the primary function of the hippocampus. And we just, and we're, and the hippocampus is serving to uh, generate those patterns that then get stored in the brain and that we are just imposing location in the previous paradigms as the, only thing that we can read out because we know the location in space that the, the animal was at any given time. But in the absence of location, who you know, we might be caring about any sorts of different events that we combine in in these sequences in cortex. It's the same fundamental. Let's think
2: mechanism. about how long practice it takes us to start enjoying Stravinsky. Yeah. <laughs> No, because those sequences are very special.
0: (laughs) But on the other hand, like maybe, can I just for the sake of argument, like, um, and maybe it's a little far afield, but if you think like linguists are always amazed at this fact that, uh, um, that, for example, a novel sentence is still interpretable, unless I guess it's completely strange, but for the most part, you know, you're creating these sentences that I'm hearing for the first time. But, I mean, what would be the counter argument to that? Like, I still understand it, but the counter argument would be that uh, it would much be much easier for me to understand if you'd said it many times or that you know this is a language that I understand I've heard it before that's why I can understand it now maybe this is a little jumping too
2: far ahead so that's the one of my other favorite uh topics is what I call neurosyntax mm. is that that you know communication is an interesting thing because we can get by with very little vocabulary uh-huh and to get something that is essential. So if I'd like to get a beer and food, then I can learn a few words or tens of words and I can find it in any society. So this is good enough. This is what I call the good enough approach and I think this is what you referred to. But if I'd like to understand the the, the structure of the brain, the nuances of a, of a communication, the nuances of a language, then I need to know everything and I have to other complete sentences not the way how I do now this is, this is the, my command of English is ridiculous but I, I, I can appreciate good English yeah. when I read it uh, so there is a, it's a good enough Communication and there is precision communication.
0: Yeah. So I guess I mean I, this is like the major concern of anybody who's like an AI person or somebody trying to what is yeah what are the minimal requirements?
2: So AI person, but, it, it, it's, it's but this is exactly what the brain machine interface people face today. Okay. That yeah. so what is what is good enough? Yes, fantastic. Out of the hundred neurons, uh, we are able to control the robot, and it's spectacular to sixty percent precision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's get, and, and it turns out that out of the 100 neurons, only five of them are useful. Yeah. So what would it require to go from 60% to 70%? Yeah. And yeah, we would need another 1,000 neurons. Mm. How about going from 70 to 75%? We would need another 10,000 neurons. Mm. Right. Uh, so the, 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 the brain is dealing with a good enough and very precise solution. And and, uh, in many situations, the good enough is good.
1: Just going back to that 2008 paper, I thought that was really uh, fascinating just uh, to think about the hippocampus as playing this fundamental role in memory and that uh, it was really shifting its focus more to time was, I I think, uh, reshaping how we think about the whole (laughs) system of memory storage.
2: Time is everything. So one of the, the issues that we discussed recently is that how do you scale up the brain. How do you make a bigger brain from a small brain? And what are the fundamentals, principles of scaling? What are the things that you have to preserve? When you make, you know, we talked about AI. If you you make a small system, how do you make it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times bigger? And if it's a physical system, what are the primary things that you want to preserve? And it seems to us is that what is preserved is the oscillation frequencies and the oscillation dynamics, that is the timing of the brain, which are constant across small and large brains, despite the fact that the size in the mammalian uh, evolution changes from, well, it, it's about 17,000-fold change from the smallest to the largest mammalian brain. Yet, huh. the rhythms of these 10 classes that I mentioned change 50%, give or take.
1: So it's really conserved just as much as any of the other basic features. It has to because really
2: when you have two patterns in your different parts of the brain and there is a reader machinery, a reader neuron or a network somewhere that is listening to both, it has a time constant of integration and if the system grows, yeah. then the time constant doesn't, ch- the, the neural time constants, as you know, they didn't change, uh, they are the same in the rat and the human. So you have to make sure that from from different areas of the codex, which are now uh, ten times uh, even more uh, distance away, the information is delivered within the same time we you know.
0: So you actually wrote a book called Rhythms of the Brain, which is an acclaimed, what they call pop science uh, a book, a summary of the vast knowledge of, uh, or your vast knowledge of, the, of brain rhythms. Um, and we just wanted to, so there's a, a science editorial um, that said, uh, called it an excellent compendium, compendium on the rapidly expanding research into the mechanisms and function of neuronal synchronization. And we just wanted to ask, what um, prompted you to, to put together this book um, especially, you know, from our point of view, we're doing this podcast because we try to make neuroscience accessible.
2: Uh, I'd like to congratulate you, and this is a a, a Nobel <laughs> mission what you are doing. <laughs> uh,
1: Thanks for being a part of it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> well, science gains its powers when understood by others, yeah. and most of the papers that we write are typically understandable by only a handful of specialist colleagues. It applies to your field also. I have a hard time understanding what you are doing and vice versa. But every now and then, the the accumulated knowledge becomes simpler because it's understood by the specialists. And this is the right time to write a review or translate or simplify larger chunks of data and uh, debates into a coherent pattern. I thought when I wrote this book that it's about right time to think, think about brain rhythms because uh, now you can be brave enough and, uh, and uh, talk to your molecular biologist even about brain rhythms or to a cognitive scientist right. and it serves two goals. First, I, I uh, wanted to highlight the meaning and importance of the complex experiments that we and others performed in the field mm-hmm and the second is a selfish but noble reason is that illustrating that this is actually a cool and interesting topic I hope that uh, we can recruit uh, many converts from different fields and disciplines it was very interesting and, and pleasurable to see that uh, it captured the attention of many engineers, physicists, psychiatrists, and even Hindu philosophers. So, Before uh, we
1: uh, conclude the interview, we want to just ask if you um, can give us a preview of your upcoming lecture at Stanford.
2: Uh, it will be mostly speculation. <laughs> <laughs> I think seminars are a good forum of not necessarily conveying last week's of uh, findings, but uh, give you the audience some uh, problems that I'm struggling with and maybe you can help me solving them.
1: So the uh, final part of the interview is uh, we just end with a series of rapid fire questions which are meant to be more uh, lighthearted and and fun. And um, so just answer with the first thing that uh, comes to the top of your mind.
0: All right. So um, if you could speak to yourself as a grad student, and we mean you specifically, Yuri, uh, what advice would you give to yourself?
2: Well, Keep your level of curiosity high. I hope it exists already. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the advice I give to myself and everybody else is that figure out what you like to do, what entertains you. And uh, once you figure that out, you need only one more thing to do, which is how to make a living with it. So um,
1: you've recently moved uh, from Rutgers in New Jersey to NYU uh, in New York. As a New Yorker myself, I'm curious, what differences have you noticed living in each state?
2: Well, I still live in New New Jersey, and so I'm in both places. Uh, But I was always a New Yorker. I just slept in New New Jersey. (laughs) This is the cultural center of the world it's not stanford it's new york (laughs) and uh, it's a fascinating place Mm. indeed and nyu is extremely rich in neuroscience it has extremely nice uh, relationship and 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 collaboration between basic science and, and the clinic I enjoy being here.
1: I watched your Alan, um, your lecture to the Allen Institute, and you just started with a little bit of uh, philosophy and people trying to understand the brain and Aristotle. So I wonder who your favorite philosopher is.
2: It's always, you know, Kant, I think for every neuroscientist, Kant is the, the ultimate philosopher when it comes to time and space. I could uh, bring out somebody from today, Pat Churchland would be a <laughs> nice leading philosopher. But uh, nobody can supersede or to better philosophy and more important than Immanuel account It's
1: a great, clear decision. <laughs> okay, well, that uh, c- concludes our interview. Thank you so much for speaking with us. This is really a wonderful conversation and we really look forward to hearing you at Stanford.
2: Okay, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Ada. Thank you.
1: And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Andrew Huberman, Assistant Professor of Neurosciences at University of California, San Diego. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West.
0: This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Patalina, David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains in Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm A Yee.
1: And I'm David Lipton.